Anybody here ever been to Gyra? And returned? It's a nice part of the world, actually, Gyra. If you're up in Gyra, northern part of the northern part of the state, uh, out in the bush, just a touch over fifty years ago, this is what you would have heard: Stephen, Stephen, nothing, just the sound of the bush, Stephen. Emptiness. The speaker was known by the locals, he was a farmer, the speaker's name was known as Jacko. And Jacko had a big property, cattle and so on, and he wanted to bring some cattle back that had strayed. So he got a hold of his little boy, Stephen, whistled up the dog, put the dog in the back of the ute, got in the ute and drove out to the back part of the property. Told Stephen to stay there, took the dog, went to get the cattle to come back. When Jacko returned, no Stephen. He wouldn't see him for another four days and three nights. In Australian history, it is still, they tell me, the largest land and air search ever conducted on Australian soil. 5,000 men and people, men and women, uh, people from around Gyra and other towns were searching the countryside for Stephen. Seven aircraft in daylight hours droned overhead, no Stephen, until an Aboriginal tracker had worked out where he was going. And this tracker, with great skill and great ingenuity, had determined that little Stephen was always backing away from people until he worked out where he was and got him. And before the tracker could say something to little Stephen, Stephen said to him, where's my daddy? And the tracker said, why are you asking? He said, we're looking for you. He said, no, 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 he said, my daddy's lost and I'm looking for him. I heard Stephen as a grown man being interviewed on ABC Radio last year, the 50th anniversary of that major, major event. There's something so emotive and so evocative about stories of lost people and, 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 and lost stuff. That little story that Alan and uh, uh, the group were doing this morning is a story that, based on a story that Jesus told. And I suspect that Jesus used stories about lostness because of their emotive content and because of the reality that's represented by them to teach us a deep truth. You see, what was happening was, and you see it in this part of the Bible that's been reprinted here uh, on the sheet. It's taken from the Bibles on the seats uh, around us. It says, the tax collectors and sinners, they were people who are rather disreputable on the wrong side of the tracks in Jesus' day. Tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, these are the people who, who presented well and, and who looked good, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man, that's Jesus, welcomes these other people and eats with them. So Jesus tells not one but actually three stories about something which was lost and has been returned. The third in this series of stories is the one that was read out. It's about a father and two sons. It's the longest and most detailed of all the stories. In this story, the younger of the two brothers makes an outrageous request. He simply says, Father, give me my share of the estate. That's why we can call it almost a dysfunctional family. You see, if he wants to inherit, 
his, his part of the, of the estate, give him his share, because in those days you, you'd get it after, uh, as an inheritance. There's only one way you're going to get an inheritance, isn't it? You've got to wait for someone to die. This young man is saying to his father, I wish you were dead. In fact, I want you dead because I want my bit. Now, he's the youngest son. He probably would get about a third, maybe a half, but usually about a third in, in the Middle East back in the first century. And the older brother would get about two-thirds or perhaps closer to the half. But this is a terrible thing that he's asking. This is, this is awful. Dad, I want you dead. Just just pause a moment. What longings do you think this young man might have in his heart? What would he think, what would be the payoff for him? What do you think he wanted to get access to? I want to be free of you, Dad. I don't want your security, your love anymore. I want to live my own life, my own way. I want to make my rules, my way for my life. I want to be free from commitment. I want to be free from obligation. I want to be free from accountability. The, the, the desire to be free and unrestricted is tantalising. It's seductive in its lure. We know what sometimes what happens when mum and dad go away and leave a couple of teenagers in charge of the house first thing they do before they leave is to make sure the insurance is paid up. Uh, so when they return, that you know they might get cash if they don't get kind. But it's more than that. Some of us know what it's like when we're on our own for the first time or you get keys to the car for the first time, that kind of stuff. But this man is he's taking it to the end, isn't he? He actually wants his dad off the scene because he's got this deep longing. He wants, in effect, a little bit of heaven now he wants the good time now astonishingly astonishingly the father grants the request and gives him his share of the estate and what's even more remarkable in the story the older brother in this family doesn't say don't talk to your father like that or this is outrageous in terms of the story, the older brother is mute. He makes no comment whatsoever. That's not right. This is a dysfunctional family. So the younger son has rejected his dad and with his desires met, he gets out and he seems to do it quickly. It says, not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth, his newfound wealth, in wild living. This is not sea change or tree change. This is a total change. He's broken free at last. He's living without restraint. Parties and prostitutes are on hand for every desire that he might have. Food in abundance, sexual delights are there for every desire. All the people gather around. Isn't it remarkable, amazing, how, how much temporary respect you can get from others when you're cashed up? He's cashed up and he's getting temporary respect from those around him. Meanwhile, of course, the older son is still back home, seemingly working hard for dad, doing what's apparently is right. But the young guy, hey, 
It's on for young and old. According to the Bible, well, the word doesn't say this, but we can use it, there is a global financial crisis. And the money runs out. It says, after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country and he began to be in need. The money runs out, the friends drop away, the good food and the good sex are no more. He's ambushed by reality. Psychologists would say he's now entered into a state of acute self-awareness. Things aren't good. Not at all. Uh, as I said in response to Wayne's question, we have four kids. They're all old enough now and you know, married and stuff. But when they were much younger, uh, they sought to educate us uh, into popular music. We didn't ask that. Uh, they just did it by yanking up the volume. Um, and one of the bands I used to be interested in back then was a band called Ben Foles Five. And I started listening to the words of the songs. I had no choice. It was loud. But they, they were intriguing because the singer was singing about a guy. Listen to the words. What I've kept with me and what I've thrown away and where the hell I've ended up on this glary random day were the things I really cared about just left along the way for being too pent up and proud. Woke up. Way too late, feeling hungover and old. And the sun was shining bright as I walked barefoot down the road. Started thinking about my old man. Seems that all men want to get into a car and go anywhere. Here I stand, sad and free. I can't cry, I can't see. What have I done? Oh God, what have I done? That's the younger brother. That's the younger son. What an interesting kind of juxtaposition of, of words. Here I stand, sad and free. What have I done? Oh God, what have I done? Maybe it's you. Maybe in a moment of powerful, gut-wrenching honesty, you might track back, trawl back through your own memory, not just a week or two, but it could be a decade or more, back to your childhood if you're older, to stuff that you hope your parents, in fact, you hope your parents die before that news ever goes public. You hope your mum and dad die without ever finding out what it is that you've done or the havoc that you have wrecked. What is it? See, as a minister, I've talked with people like that. I've heard people's confession. What have I done? Oh God, what have I done? And men have sat with me in my office with tears running down their eyes saying, Jim, I cannot tell you what it was. It is so bad. For some it went way back into the wartime. Things they did away from home where they thought nobody would know, which were vile 
and ugly and they just can't even talk about it. Other people much closer betraying their parents' trust, lying and deceit. What have I done? The trouble I've caused, the problems that now come, what can I do? Where we were living in, in the southern part of Sydney up until recently, it's called the Sutherland Shire. It's the southern part. It's a lovely area. Beaches and parks and all the stuff. Up until a few years ago, it had the highest rate of young male suicide in all Australasia. They had everything. But they had nothing. Things they'd done, they couldn't escape the guilt. What have I done? Oh God, what have I done? This young man in Jesus' story, had ordered the only person in his life out of his life. And it looks like he's regretting it. Sometimes there are people who, who give God the finger and say, God, get out of my life. I don't want, as one lady said to me recently, I don't want that God crap in her anger. She had no solution to the problems in her life and the deep anguish of her soul, all she knew is she didn't want God. Maybe you've said that in your life. Maybe you're saying that. I want you to think very carefully because the God that Jesus speaks about, the God and Father of the Lord Jesus, is a God of infinite care and great knowledge. And this young man in Jesus' story starts to think about the Father, God starts to think about his father and says, actually, back home, even the hired servants <clears throat> who don't have any family connection whatsoever, even the hired servants are better off than where I am now because where he is now, he's feeding pigs. Can you imagine that? Jewish boy looking after pigs. A young Jewish boy even wanting to eat what the pigs eat. That's how far he's sunk. So what does he do? We listen in as he's thinking. He works out a plan. Listen to him as he develops his plan. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food here to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will sit out and go back to my father and say to him, One, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. That's the first point. Secondly, I'll say to him, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Thirdly, I'll say to him, Make me like one of your hired men. Employ me. I don't want to be, I won't be a son, just employ me. So he got up and went to his father. I wonder what he thought will happen. I wonder what the father was thinking while this is going on. I wonder what the older brother's thinking. Well, let's see what happens. Because the scene shifts. He gets close to home. He's not there yet. He gets close. And Jesus says in the story, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son and threw his arms around him and kissed him. Some of you have followed me as I've read that. Did I read it correctly? No, I didn't, did I? I'll tell you why I didn't. It's because I'm a father because I've got sons and daughters. And many years ago, when our eldest son was left primary school and going to high school, uh, we were living in a part of Sydney which wasn't 
perhaps on top of the, you know, vogue list of desirable places to live. It was southwest Sydney. And my son used to have to catch a train from Liverpool or Cabramatta Railway Station to go to high school by train. In wintertime, when he was young, in the first year, his first year at high school, uh, there were drug dealers. You'd step over the, the, the young kids selling Rohypnol and all the rest of it. You'd go past where the rebel bikers had parked their bikes outside Liverpool Hotel. At mid, in midwinter, it wasn't nice, and he would get off the train about 4.15. Cold, windy, rainy night, I go down there to pick him up. 4.15, train comes in, no boy. Oh, okay. 4.30, no son. 4.45, 5 o'clock, 5.15, 5.30, What do you reckon was going on in here? If you're a father, what do you reckon was going on? Where's my boy? This is a rough part of town. Things have happened. He's already seen one person, you know, with a knife with blood on it, one day coming home from school. Where's my son? Six o'clock, no, 6.15, the train rolls and he gets out. What do you reckon I did? Oh, hop in, let's go. No way, not on your nelly. I ran up to him, son, you okay? What's happened? What's wrong? Little kid, big school bag, dark night. There was no real major problem, just a series of things that delayed him. Uh, Late getting out of a class because of a good reason, missing a bus, missing a train, all that kind of stuff. But I was so glad to have him back. Give him a big hug. He could have asked me for anything that night. He could have had the world. It was great. See, when you read this, it says, well, this is how you read it. But while he was a long way off, his father saw him. And filled with compassion, ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. It's an incredibly emotional part of the Bible. It's Jesus telling us how God will respond when the most wretched, vile, stupid, ignorant, bad person comes to their senses and wants to come back home to God. It's remarkable. It's remarkable. All the more remarkable if we were there when Jesus was telling the story. Because if we were there with him when he's telling the story, if we were Middle Easterners in Palestine in the first century, we would hear that and say, that's outrageous. Not that the father welcomed him, but the father actually ran out of the town to greet him. Because you see, noblemen, well-to-do men, landholders, farmers who own property in Palestine, in that part of of history... Never, ever ran publicly. In fact, one of my books at home is a book about uh, people who, who run churches and run Bible colleges in Palestine in, 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 the, in, in the 20th century, last century. And the story recounts how a man had to resign his position uh, as a minister because he did that. And it'd be like you seeing Bryson Smith run through the middle of Dubbo and you say, well, Bryson, he's out of here. He'd have to resign his job and go. As would Alan, as would Wayne. So don't ever run, okay? Especially if you're a minister in Palestine. See, the, the, the father humiliates himself to welcome the son back. Just think about that. Well, what happens next? Because we know what the son's speech is. The son said to him, One, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. Two, 
I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. What's happened to point three? Why doesn't he say, make me more like one of your hired men? What's happened to change all this? Well, very simply, he's beginning to see that the money and the cash that he's got and he's wasted and squandered is not the point. The broken relationship is at the centre. He can't heal that. He can offer no solution. His only response is, listen carefully, I am no longer worthy. Have you ever said that to God and meant it? I know when we come to church, words are put into our mouths. Sometimes they're like, they're songs or they're hymns, and that's quite, fi- that's quite fine. But have you ever done business with God to the point where you've actually said to God, God, I am no longer worthy? Because Jesus is saying, this is how the relationship gets restored. It, it calls for a blunt, gutsy honesty. It calls for a truthfulness that some of us might find very, very hard to admit. My wife and I accompanied somebody recently to an AA meeting. If any of you are involved in AA or you've been to them, you'll know there's only one way you can stay and be a a true member of that group. You, you, You stand up and you walk out the front and you say words like, my name is Jim Ramsey and I am an alcoholic. And if you hear their stories in those sorts of meetings, man after man, woman after woman, will tell you how for years they lived in denial. They would not admit it until they had to get to a point where they did. And there are men and women in our country, in this city, who live in denial that they are not worthy. And they're not. And I'm not. And you're not. And Jesus saying, we've got to come to that point of honesty and confession before God. What does the father do when the son says this? He doesn't get to the third bit. It's no longer about being employed. He's reinstated to the son role. It's fantastic. It's terrific. And look what happens. The father said to the servants, quick, bring the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet, bring the fattened calf, kill it, throw out the chocolates, all that kind of stuff. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. It's wonderful. That is God's response to the worst of sinners who will come back to him. But the story is not over yet. The older brother. Remember him? We've been, we, we've been checking him out as we've been going along. He was the one who all the time had remained at home with the father. We've known what's in the young man's heart. It's pretty ugly. And we're getting a glimpse of what the father's heart is like. What's in the heart of the older brother? This older brother is returning home in the story and he hears the music, sees the dancing and wants to check out what's going on here. He makes an inquiry and his inquiries tell him what the reason for the festivities happened to be. Does he go inside to see his young brother, say, mate, it's good to have you back? No. Does he rejoice for his father's sake that the son has returned? No. He actually argues with his father, so much for being the obedient son, 
And once again, there is this rupture between father and son. This dysfunctional uh, nature comes to the surface again. And he begins to be offside with his father. In fact, it's hard to, I think it's harder to, hard to find a man who can more successfully condemn himself than this older brother. Look at his behaviour. He, he addresses his father without a title. That's not good. Especially in the Middle East. He speaks like a slave to his father, not like a son. He insults his father publicly, so much for being obedient. He actually accuses his father of favouritism. What you're doing to my young brother? In fact, he doesn't even talk about, you know, my brother. He actually says, you know, this son of yours. A, a, a way of speaking which seems to distance himself from the young man. In fact, joy to this older brother was a booze up with his mates, not the recovery of his brother, and he attacks the younger brother. So what will the father do now? It's amazing, friends. For the second time in the story, the father's response is amazing. There's no recrimination, no judgment, no rejection. He simply turns to this man and says, My son. Friends, I think Jesus has shown us not one, but two types of lost people. The younger brother, who outwardly and openly rejected the father and went bad. The older brother has cloaked his rejection under hypocrisy. He looks good. One looks bad. One looks good. Both are equally lost. Both reject the father in their own way. Both break the father's heart. In reality, both were equally lost. But the same unexpected love is demonstrated in humiliation to both. The younger son ultimately understood and accepted the status of being found. He knew he was lost not like little Stephen outside Gyra. The elder son, so far as the story goes, does not. And the question remains, does he stay lost? The older son is the perfect example of that, of that little saying, so near and yet so far. Years ago, I used to teach scripture in schools. Yeah, you go into the public, in the state schools and tell Bible stories for 30 minutes or so. I know you do it here. I used to have a sixth class uh, group in primary, um, boys and girls. And in that group, there was a little boy, uh, educationally, you describe him this way, he was a wretch. Uh, that's basically him. And he was disobedient. He was a oh, kind of kid. And if I was teaching, he'd, be up the, he'd get up and he'd walk around. I'd say, sit down. Ignored me. Please sit down. No. Third time. Sit down. So, walks up to me. As his little bottom's about to go on the seat, he turns to me and said, Mr. Ramsey, I'm sitting down, but inside I'm still standing up. Oh. And I thought, I mean, isn't that brilliant? I mean, I think it's brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. That is the older brother. Outward conformity, but inner non-compliance. Our churches are filled with older brothers. I sing the songs, I give the money, I say the prayers, I go on the rosters, I turn up, I'm involved, I'm here, 
But inside, inside, there is no deep affectionate love for the Father. I've never really come clean with him, but I'm playing the game. I'm there. The younger one, he's easy to spot, isn't he? He goes out and does the bad stuff. The older one, he's hanging around church all the time, looking so good. Both estranged from the father. Which one were you? Better still, more importantly, which one are you? Do you want to come home? Do you want to be right with the Father? Do you want the Father to rejoice that you're with him? Do you want to show your love for what he's done? See, I've said how that Father humiliated himself by running through the town. God's love is a love in humiliation. And the greatest, greatest, greatest example of it is by the very person who's actually telling this story. A few months later, where does he end up? Nailed to a cross. The enemy's trying to dismiss him to oblivion. Get this man out of here. Kill him. And he allows himself to be killed because in God's great design for things, that perfect Jesus in his death is the basis for which my forgiveness can be achieved. Because unlike the father who ran to the son in the story, who takes the humiliation of the village and runs and brings him in. This time the father has sent the son who is humiliated on a cross. But that son says, I will die and I will take the penalty for all of your wrong, all of your sin, if you're willing to confess it. Friends, will you say to God this morning, I am no longer worthy. Please forgive me. I don't care if you've been sitting in this building or others for all of your life. You could be an older brother. I don't care whether you're one who's done the most vile things. You could be the younger brother. The father wants you back. Will you come? Will you trust him to forgive you? If you want to do that, there is a prayer just printed on the inside of this sheet. It says, Dear God, thank you for being my creator. I know that I'm not worthy of your love and mercy. I've lived as if I was in charge. Please forgive me. I'm lost and I want to come home to you. Thank you for sending Jesus to bring me home. Thank you that he died for me. I want Jesus to be in charge of my life. Thank you. I began this talk by talking about little Stephen up there outside of Gyra. Just think for a moment. Three nights on the fourth day, the tracker finds him. What do you reckon would have happened if he'd never been found? That'd have been awful. Truly awful. You see, staying lost is not just a, a neutral thing. It has deep and dark consequences. And if I stay lost from God, that has a very deep 
and a very dark consequence. The end is not good. It's bad. The Father wants you home. Rather than the bad, he wants you welcomed into his presence so you can go home from this building today knowing that you are okay with God. You want to pray that prayer? Well, there it is. I'll say it slowly. You say it in your heart with me if you want to do serious business with God. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for being my creator. I know I'm not worthy of your love and mercy. I've lived as if I was in charge. Please forgive me. I am lost and I want to come home to you. Thank you for sending Jesus to bring me home. Thank you that he died for me. I want Jesus to be in charge of my life. Thank you, God.